is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we like to talk about everything here on this show. Sports, art, movies, stories of love, life, marriage, and business. We profile entrepreneurs whenever we can. Titans of the business world, small guys, and everything in between. And gals. Fastest growing segment of the American economy and small business is women. More and more women starting their own business, equaling men that no one would have thought 20 or 30 years ago. And one of our favorite shows, because we love television, about business is Shark Tank. And it's on ABC every Friday night. It's on CNBC on an almost endless loop at night alongside The Prophet and a couple of other very good shows. There's a new one with a great restaurateur out of Houston that's just terrific. And you learn a lot about the business world, a lot more than you learn almost anywhere else, certainly in most colleges, than you do at Shark Tank, and it's very entertaining. And so we would love to just look back at some of the best and the worst of Shark Tank, and here's one of the worst pitches of all time. Up into the tank stepped Aaron McDaniel with his company, Tycoon, a real estate crowdfunding platform. Well, he hit the studios with Shark Tank to pitch this young platform to the Sharks. And in this episode, Mark Cuban is out in less than 60 seconds. I'm seeking $50,000 in exchange for 5% of my company. For literally hundreds of years, the most proven way to consistently build wealth has been through investing in real estate. Unfortunately, traditional real estate investing is difficult, intimidating, and expensive. The best deals are only offered to the super wealthy behind closed doors, helping the rich get richer and locking the rest of us out. What's wrong with that? (laughs) Now, you have the opportunity to get in on the ground floor of an exciting new business that will change real estate investing forever. Tycoon Real Estate is a crowd investing platform that allows everyday people to invest in real estate for as little as $1,000. I hate it. I'm out. Ouch. Wow. Ouch. I smell jail time. I smell jail time. Oh, by the way, what's the company worth, guys? I got it. 1.2 million. 1.2. Wait a second. 50K, 5%. Oh, I thought he said 60. Sorry. No, he said sorry. 50. All right, all right. 1 million? 1 million. All right. Bingo. And by the way, how that works is for 5% of the company at 50K, you go to a 20 times multiplier to get to the million, to get to the 100% stake. That means he was going to be selling 20 people 5% shares at 50,000. That's a million. So this guy was valuing his company at a million dollars. And Mark Cuban goes, a million bucks? I'm out of here. <laughs> This isn't even an idea yet. McDaniel goes on to explain how his company works while Mark Cuban continues to just give him grief. So first we go to Tycoon's website. Once you're here, you can look through our list of investment opportunities. There are a variety of different types from residential to commercial, each with their own unique investment objectives. So as an example, this one here is a marquee retail property that's part of a large commercial complex just outside of the Manhattan area. All you have to do is enter the amount of money you'd like to invest, go through a simple online process, And once the investment goal is met, you're a real estate investor. Then you can sit back and enjoy the profits you get from the appreciation and the cash flows of the property. So Sharks, we're on the brink of an exciting new era where literally anyone can be a real estate tycoon. How do I get my money back? How do I get the return? Boom, boom, boom. Give the guy a cigar. Give a guy a cigar. Because that is the question. And this guy tries to answer Robert's question and goes on to answer a few more. 
from the other sharks. So, I mean, ultimately, this is this is a business to scale in a big way. No, but walk me through a single model. Sure. I invest in that building in New Jersey. I give you $10,000. Sure. I assume I own some percentage of it. That's correct. I assume that building is taking on so much rent. I'm making money. Yes. Then the building gets sold one day. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming I make a return on my 10000 equal to my value of the overall building. Right. So depending on... Who sets on the value of the building at the time that I invest? The What we refer to as the deal maker, the developer who is looking to raise money for the project. So there's a lead developer that is in charge of the investment. That's correct. Are you taking... A fee. So what we take is a management fee. How much is it? 1.25% of the amount raised. Wow, that's not bad. Or is it? Mr. Wonderful asks McDaniel about alternatives to his platform. Mark Cuban continues to balk at the pitch. Well, let's say I want to invest in real estate. I can go online to one of the big players, Fidelity or Schwab. I can buy a REIT. A REIT is a real estate investment trust mm -hmm. so that people can get diversification in real estate Total liquidity, I can buy and sell it any day I want. I'm going to get my yield of 4.5%, mm -hmm. and I have 5,000 properties inside the REIT. REITs aren't sexy. Nobody brags about REITs. That's so horrible. But Aaron, I mean, who so cares horrible. about sexy when that it comes so to saving because, money? Because that is you wrong talk to any, so you talk to any ways, real estate investor, and one of the main reasons they talk about investing is that physical, emotional connection they have to the building. I think people have a physical, emotional connection to their life savings. <laughs> How about that? Robert, in or out? I think when you're dealing with people's life savings, mm -hmm. and I think this attracts the kind of person who wants a greater return for their retirement, I think you've got to be conservative with your money. Be risky at work, be safe with your investments. And, and to that point, there, there's a... Okay. Lori, in or out? I don't like the idea of investing in real estate online with a bunch of other people I don't know. That seems to me risky and uncomfortable. And for that simple reason, I'm out. So what about the real estate girl? Barbara Corcoran, in or out? I think the Achilles heel in this, and it comes from years of investing in real estate, is your lead investor. Who is the lead investor? How smart are they? How do they work the angles? What kind of financing do they provide? And I believe that that's the key to any great real estate investment. This is a mystery investor here. How do I know he's got a good eye? How do I believe his projections? Too spooky and frankly unfair to someone who isn't well informed in the real estate business and experience. That's right, and that's why we do the vetting to make sure we only work with top people. You gotta trust the opinion of who's behind it. And that's what's scary, and that's why I'm definitely out. Wow, and that's a woman who knows a lot about real estate. Mr. Wonderful, in or out? You have something here that sounds interesting to me. And so here, I'm gonna tell you what I wanna do with you. There's going to be thousands of sites like Tycoon that emerge. Mm -hmm. They have no brand. Just think of the name, Tycoon. Tycoon. Please. Tycoon, what does it say finish. to a small investor? It's a ripoff name. And Mr. Wonderful continues. You have no brand. Tycoon means nothing to anybody. <laughs> I do have a brand. I have a track record of success. Mm -hmm. I'll give you $50,000. I want 50%. I'm going to rebrand this thing. I wouldn't go anywhere higher than 10% of that. Bummer. You think I'm going to put my name? He doesn't I'm not asking for your name. But this you have nothing. Correct. I have a proven model that raised a billion dollars in 36 months. My name. Got to decide, Aaron. What do you want to do? No. Well, he, he's saying no. All right. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I forgot your name already. I'm out. Thank you. And shortly after this episode aired, five real estate crowdfunding platforms joined together to purchase Tycoon Real Estate. Following the episode, traffic to Tycoon site rocketed to a point the site could no longer handle the load of traffic. The sharks can be right. The sharks can be wrong. This is Lee Habib, our Shark Tank episode on Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our weekly segment with Nate Scott from For the Win, USA Today's leading sports site at ftw.usatoday.com. And Nate joins us now. And Nate, how are you? I'm good, Lee. How are you? I know during the break we were just talking about uh, your engagement. And uh, give us the uh, the details. When's the big date? I'm sounding like I want, I'm I'm game to be in the the wedding party for the for the bride. Actually, by being so <laughs> giddy about you getting married. Yeah, it's uh, it's happening in June in Washington D.C. At least that's the plan right now. And uh, as long as nothing crazy happens, that's that's what we're gonna do. Well, fantastic. And uh, and how did the uh, how did the pitch go? I mean, I, we haven't spoken since the big pitch. And uh, all went well, I assume. It sounds like it did. All went great. Um, we we had the family tied in nearby. And they came out and celebrated with us. It was a it was a great success, thankfully. Fantastic. And of course, uh, this was a traditional pitch. I mean, did you get on your knee? Did you stand up? Were you standing on your head? It's always interesting to me what actually and how people actually do this. Well, I actually did it on on one knee, but I had a friend surprise me with a photographer there to capture the moment because my fiance is really into photography. Um, I didn't know there was going to be a photographer there, and so I was confused as I was about to do this why a woman holding a very expensive camera popped out of nowhere. Right. And so, and so I was sort of talking to the photographer while I'm trying to propose. <laughs> it was kind of there was a lot going on, but yeah. we got through it. Yeah, I, I I still remember the date, the moment, and the feeling, and it, it never escapes you because there's always that chance the woman will just go, "Are you kidding me? Not a chance, pal. <laughs> I like you as a friend." And it's like there you are with a you know a nice expensive ring in your hand, and you got to go home and tell all your buddies she said no. So good for no. you, and, and congratulations. Good for you. Hey, you know, before we dig into some of the things we're going to talk about today, uh, we went to For the Win last week uh, for some audio from uh, a great actor, Bill Murray, who had a lot to say about Arnold Palmer. And we ended up spending not an hour on Arnold Palmer's life, but in successive weeks, two hours. Because, Nate, it was such an exceptional life on so many levels. And we had no idea what an impact he had on the commercialization of the sport. He didn't just popularize the sport and bring it to America, the working man's golfer. But my goodness, the working man's golfer was a heck of a businessman, Nate. Absolutely. And, and you know, we, you always talk about Tiger Woods as the guy who made golf sort of what it was. And I guess he brought it to, to I guess, my generation. But the more I read Arnold Palmer, the more I realized, you know, Tiger was just following in his footsteps. Tiger may have brought it into the video game era, but Arnold Palmer brought golf into the homes of everyone in America. And he was the guy more than anyone, more than Nicholas, more than Hogan, who who made golf something that everyone could could aspire to go out and do and, and really brought it into everyone's homes. Yeah, he democratized the sport, no doubt. What was interesting is we, we got the funeral excerpts and the memorial service excerpts because in the Pittsburgh area, it was on live on like three different stations. That's mm-hmm. how important... Arnold Palmer was to the Latrobe area, which is not far from Pittsburgh, and Oakmont was one of his favorite places. And we're not golfers here, but yet, you know, it's always important to talk about all sports on Our American Stories, and golf's a big sport, and Arnold made it, you know, just really ordinary. What was interesting, though, is when Jack Nicklaus got up, and he was one of the last guys to get up, he couldn't actually talk straight to the audience because he knew he was going to choke up, so he started reading and he choked up even when he was reading. But at the end, he said Arnold was the most important player in the history of the game, which is a big thing for Jack Nicholas to say. But he also mm-hmm. said, I'm a member of Arnie's army. 
And I think everybody was a member of Arnie's army in the end. Absolutely. I mean, he, he, he made it, he made it cool. He made it fun. He made it, he made it accessible for everyone. And he, and I don't know, I, the more I read, the more I appreciate everything he did and the, the how he understood more than perhaps anyone that he was an ambassador for the game. And yes, that took place in, in, in his business ventures, but also just in the way he treated fans. And it was, he's a guy we'll never see another one like him. Yeah. I think his rebuttal to Charles Barkley's we're not role models is what a load of nonsense. Of course yeah. we are. And act like it, because you're getting paid a whole lot of money. Uh, show some respect. These people pay a lot of money to see you. I was, uh, we were flabbergasted to hear how many hours at a time he'd stay and just sign every last autograph. That was Jim Nance's biggest memory. He goes, Jack, I mean, uh, Arnold just wouldn't leave until that last fan's autograph was signed. Yeah, it's, uh, Bill Murray told us, you know, Bill Murray, who's as, as a charismatic and guy who really gets out there and connects with people perhaps more than anyone he was blown away by how much Arnold Palmer was willing to take the time with with the people uh, who loved him and I, I think that says a lot it does now let's talk about another golfer Tiger Woods he's back to talk about that Nate where did he go uh, and what happened yeah. and why is he back you know late breaking news before we hopped on the phone he just said he's actually not going to play this weekend um, which is a little too bad but Tiger is, he, he basically says in the next month or two, he will return to the golf course. Um, we thought it was going to happen this weekend. It turns out it's not. And I wrote a column about it basically saying that, you know, it's time for Tiger to take that next step into his career where he's not going to be the most dominant golfer alive. He's not going to be the guy who wins every week. And that's, that's okay. We can have a Tiger Woods who's, out there and competing and is one of the older guys that the young guys look up to. And, you know, if he's playing all right, that's fine. And then every once in a while, if he makes a run at the top of the leaderboard, that's great. And I think with this younger generation of golfers finally sort of stepping into the limelight and really kind of taking golf into a new direction, that's great. I think it's, it's, it's time Tiger, you know, stopped worrying about the injuries, stopped worrying about, you know, if he's going to be in contention every weekend and just get back out on the course. And just start enjoying the game, maybe for the first time. Maybe this is the point in his life where he actually just gets to enjoy being an ambassador for the game. Hey, look, we learned about Palmer. He went 43-plus years after his last major, but he was still playing, loving the game. The story Nicholas said is, you know, there was one time we were out playing, and I, I hit like a 74. I shot a 74, and Arnold shot a 73, and we're walking back to the clubhouse, and Arnie says, I got you, Jack. And Jack's there like, we're like 90th. We're not going to place. He goes, I know, but I beat you. In other words, he, he was still out there having fun, just competing with the guys, playing a game. Most of us would die to get paid to play. To, to, to play. Exactly. And I, and I think that was what was so great about this year's Ryder Cup was they invited Tiger Woods as the captain. He didn't pick up a club. He didn't swing a golf club all weekend, but he was out on the course with the guys. He got to see how much the younger guys idolize him. And, you know, these golfers coming up were 22, 23 years old. Tiger was their hero when they were, when they were in grade school. And so for him and for them to sort of share with him how much it means for them for him to be out on the course with them, even if he's not at the top, top of his game, even if he's not a killer anymore, that's fine. And, and if he can just come back and play and be on tour and be a guy that, that gets people excited, that, that's great. And I think it's, it's okay for him to, to just do that. You know, I want to hit a happy note here because you guys at For the Win cover more than just sports. A young boy lost one of his favorite Legos, so he decided to write a letter. Uh, tell us about that story. What happened next, Nate? 
It's really wonderful. Uh, boy Luca wrote a letter to Lego's customer service saying um, he had bought a, a a kit for a ninja kit from Lego, and his dad had told him not to take the toys with him when they went out. But he did take the toys with him, and uh, he ended up losing his prized Lego. And so his dad said, "Well, I'm not buying you another one, but if you want to write to Lego, you can." And he did, and Lego customer service went above and beyond um, with one of the most charming letters you'll ever read. Well, we can, uh, we, we'll share it on our site and link it to yours. And we like hearing, you know, these kind of stories, Nate. They're, 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 they're lifesavers. And also, we love talking about some oddities. And you had a story about some weird athlete habits and what some baseball players do to prevent, of all things, blisters. Tell us one quick story. We got about a minute and a half left, Nate. And it's so funny. I never heard this. And our baseball writer, Ted Berg, who I, I know has been on your program a couple times, he said, oh, yeah, the guys do this all the time. I said, well, you probably want to write this up because I don't think everyone knows this. Um, but Rich Hill has taken a, a pitcher who, who suffered from blisters all season, has taken to urinating on his own hand oh. because of the belief that that will toughen his skin up. And there's no proof at all that it works, but he seems to believe in it, and, and a lot of baseball players apparently do, and have tried it for years. So there goes that. Fir- oh, <laughs> there goes that firm handshake theory too. There it is. Oh my goodness! Well, thanks as always, Nate, for sharing. Congratulations on the on the wedding date, and uh, I think we may just make our way to Washington D.C. in June. I'm there a lot, and I feel like I've gotten to know you. And I think there'd be no better thing to do than come in there with a really good camera and take some pictures of my own and post them on our website. We really, by the way, love marriage here on Our American Stories. We're trying to let everybody know that it's actually good. It it helps foster all kinds of things like love and children. Crazy idea. But we love marriage here on Our American Stories, and we love For the Win. Nate, thanks so much for what you do. Thanks, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And you can catch Nate Scott and his team's work at ftw.usatoday.com. American Stories, where we love great stories about everything, music, sports, love, death, business. One of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world, which brings us to our Sweet Charity Series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series, none other then Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications and a modern Renaissance man. Carl has authored 11 books, including two based on his time in Iraq, a storytelling cookbook, and even a graphic novel published by Marvel Comics. But of course, we know him by his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And here's a story from that great collection. Harold Hess and Eric Betzig 
are both brilliant physicists. Both hate running in a herd, and both have a deep aversion to paper shuffling. They were especially turned off by the bureaucracy that has become a big part of winning government funding for science experiments. Betsy got so sick of science bureaucracy that he actually quit experimenting. For many of the same reasons, his good friend Hess also left his job. So both men ended up unemployed. They continued to think a lot about how they might help advance science at a high level, but they were determined not to get snarled up in the red tape associated with public funding. Hess describes what came next, saying, quote, We visited parks, we talked and talked and explored, and we asked ourselves where the untrodden paths in science are. We finally came up with a new concept for a super high-resolution microscope that can look deep into cells at the molecular level. But then the two men faced a stumbling block. Who would fund the building of the first version of this microscope? Here, Harold Hess continues on in his own words. So then we're faced with, well, what do we do now? We could go for grant money. That was basically nauseous for both of us. And uh, too much work to, to write proposals. And we decided instead of buying a new car or remodeling the kitchen or anything like that, let's just put our own money into it. And we each put about 25000 into it, set up a little lab. Uh, this is here in my little condo in La Jolla. You can see how much these two first-rate scientists had come to despise the administrative rigmarole of science funding. Despite being out of work, in middle age, with no job prospects, they were willing to spend $50,000 out of their own pockets to build the machine they had dreamed up. That's how odious the process of begging for official grants had become for them. Right now, I'm staring at a snapshot of the first super high-resolution microscope these two men built in Hess's condominium in La Jolla, California. It's a big Rube Goldberg machine, all electronic boxes and metal tubes and wires connected to a keyboard and monitor. And the hilarious part is it's sitting on a patch of beige carpeting right next to a piano bench with a fireplace and an ornate antique chair in the background and a couple of tennis rackets leaning against a nearby bookcase. This is super science as conducted in a suburban apartment building by a couple of mavericks, one of whom didn't have a wife to kick them out when they started dragging in all the machinery, as Eric Betzig points out. Normally, like Wozniak and Jobs would do it in the garage, but we were able to do it in the living room because Harold wasn't married. So, <laughs> so uh, there was nobody uh, standing in the way of doing it there. The two men were right that not having to jump through all the conventional funding hoops would allow them to work faster. In fact, their brainstorm took shape in a matter of months. We are able to work at lightning speed because we were like really focused just on this. And the device they created right there in front of the fireplace, turned out to be a marvel. And I mean a marvel. So much so that Eric Betzig and Harold Hess were both offered directorships of their own labs at the super innovative research campus created by today's most potent medical philanthropy, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And in 2014, that same living room microscope transported Eric Betzig all the way to Stockholm. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the insight that he and his friend Harold had demonstrated in real life in Harold's condo. Not bad for self-funded checkbook science. 
And when it comes to scientists feeling oppressed by the bureaucracy of today's public funding mechanisms, Betzig and Hess have lots of company. Quote, when today's researchers are asked what they do for a living, some joke that their full-time job is grant writing and their part-time job is research. That's what Anthony Atala, a world leader in the exciting field of regenerative medicine, told me recently. He notes that researchers have to apply for an average of six grants to be awarded a single one by the U.S. National Institutes of Health. And what's even worse than the paperwork is the crippling timidness of the federal granting agencies. As eminent biologist Lee Hood told us, at the NIH, if you haven't already completed two-thirds of your research, you're probably not going to get a grant because everything is so cautious. Top New York University researcher Charles Marmar says the same thing. Quote, government research is powerfully conservative today. I've been an NIH researcher for decades, and to get an NIH grant, you essentially have to already have solved the problem in question. When Internet entrepreneur Sean Parker announced in April that he was putting $250 million into the science of immunotherapy, he decried the tendency of government agencies to fund only sure things. Most government research grants, he complained, are now channeled to things that are already obvious, experiments where the outcome is predictable. This risk avoidance by government science funding agencies, says leading biologist Rick Horowitz, quote, creates terrible dilemmas for people experimenting at unproven boundaries or young scientists. So you end up with cases like Betzig and Hess, who had to put up their own money and deal with joblessness in order to make a breakthrough. Now, the good news is that private donors are putting up money for science research that is much more flexible, much more willing to take gambles on big breakthroughs, and much more interested in fresh ideas. Horowitz, for instance, recently left the University of Virginia to run an exciting new center set up by philanthropist Paul Allen with a $100 million donation to do fundamental investigations of how cells work. Paul Allen has also jump-started brain research with a separate $500 million gift to that area. Sean Parker is betting his quarter of a billion dollars on the possibility that immune systems could be used as a very new way of treating cancer. And $700 million donated by the Brode family has created the leading genetic research center today in the whole world. The examples go on and on. At the philanthropically funded Howard Hughes Medical Institute, where Betzig and Hess now work, research teams are given far more latitude than traditional researchers, and it shows up in their productivity. A major study recently found that, quote, investigators of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which tolerates early failure, rewards long-term success, and gives its appointees great freedom to experiment, produce high-impact papers at a much higher rate than a control group of similarly accomplished scientists funded by government grants. The great biologist Lee Hood makes a similar observation just from his own experience as a scientist. What I've always loved about philanthropy, he says, is it's money that can catalyze new ideas. It's money that lets you push the frontiers, follow the leading edge. So a philanthropist who is willing to say, yeah, I'll step in and help you find something new, is a real jewel. And great work on that, Carl. And by the way, we know much of this from our, our time spent on the Wright brothers. Now, that wasn't philanthropic, um, but these guys had very little money. It was their own. They built their own wind tunnels. Meanwhile, the federal government had put all kinds of money in the Langley experiment. Langley was the leading scientist and Heather Smithsonian 
and of course the two bicycle mechanics in Kitty Hawk. Well, they figured it out first because they were playing a with their own money and their own skin in the game. And David McCulloch's book on the Wright Brothers is a must-read. But great job on this. Once again, sweet charity from Carl Zinsmeister, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals as the sponsor of this segment. And if you can, order the Almanac of American Philanthropy. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we tell a lot of police stories on this show because what you get from the media is such a small slice of what actually happens on our streets. We all know how important trust is between police and citizens. So today we're going to take a deep dive into police accountability. The story about how one big police department polices itself. Joe Gamaldi has been a policeman for 11 years, born and raised in Long Island, New York. He spent three years with the MIPD and then transferred to the Houston Police Department. Joe is also the second vice president of the Houston Police Officers Union. We had a great talk with him earlier about policing the police, and here are some things we thought might surprise you. Let's start by getting a sense of just how big Houston is and what the police department has to handle. The Houston Police Department has approximately 5,200 officers. Um, We patrol a city of approximately 2.5 million, according to the last census. We're the fourth largest city in America. Um, About half of those 5,200 will operate in the patrol function, and the other half uh, operates in the investigative portion of the department. And how does someone join HPD? It's a rigorous application process. Uh, You must have 48 college credits uh, in order to apply and obviously have a clean background record. As soon as someone puts in an application with the Houston Police Department, you know, it starts obviously with a physical examination, a medical exam, um, a a background investigation. That is the first layer to kind of catching anything that may be red, uh, red warning signs for us. And then in addition to that, they go for a full psychological workup. And the idea behind that is let's catch anyone before they ever get on the department. It would take approximately three to four months once first contact is made for them to do a complete background, have you go through all the medical and psychological exams, and then get you uh, ready for the academy. And then, of course, there's a six-month academy before you hit the streets. And even with all these systems, some troublemakers will slip through the cracks. Or more commonly, some rookies will need some extra guidance. Here's Joe talking about a few of the ways that HPD polices itself. There's several layers. You know, I think the first is probably just an informal layer, which is just other officers looking out for other officers in issues of very small issues that they may see. You know, they may see an officer who handles a call in a way that they probably thought wasn't appropriate or didn't think was right, and they might tell them, hey, you know, that's not really the way you should have done it. You should have done it this way by policy. Uh, Of course, we can move up into the more official things and something that was recently introduced or rebranded as an early warning system. 
And what that is, is a department program that identifies officers who may have received a couple complaints in a short period of time. They don't necessarily have to be sustained complaints. It could just be accusations. And what they'll do is they'll be placed on an early warning system for approximately 90 days to evaluate if there's any training issues that need to be addressed, uh, such as, you know, additional classes at the academy or a refresher on certain topics. But also uh, the officer will have to meet with their sergeant more often than they normally would to just go over uh, the calls that they went on on that day or that week and how they handled those calls. So it's just kind of an added layer of protection to kind of catch anyone before they may, uh, you know, walk off the path, so to speak. Now, that system works for the vast majority of issues, but what about the officers who really do cross that line? Anytime you have an organization this big, you're going to have bad apples. And, and we, don't, we don't pretend to think that every single one of our officers is perfect. But what I think the misconception is from the public is that there's a, you know, a, a blue wall of silence that, that will back up our officers no matter what they do. And, and I'm here to tell you, because I've been in the culture now for 11 years, that that's just not the case. When there's an officer doing something that they're not supposed to do, and especially when it, in regards to criminal activity, officers are going to step up and they're going to point out that that officer is doing it, and we want them gone because they give the rest of us good officers a bad name. And, you know, specifically whenever I bring that up, someone's quick to mention, well, yeah, you may want the people who commit crimes out, but you guys don't want the officers who commit excessive force. And, you know, although I can't go into very specifics because of confidentiality, we had a case just a year ago where an officer used excessive force inside a DWI facility, and two officers reported that use of force. They wrote the letters to IED. They started the investigation, and as a result, the officer was was held to task, and he was fired as well as he should have been because he used excessive force. But our officers stepped up to the plate and made sure that that officer, you know, that someone was notified for what the officer did. And I think most people in the public don't think that that happens. And by the way, we have these accountability problems in private America and corporations. You know, the culture comes from the top in every department. Ultimately, that's what you'd probably find. And that's why we're going department to a department. And we started with such a big one like the Houston Police Department. And that example of cops reporting a fellow cop for using excessive force isn't at HBD an isolated incident. We actually had an officer who was leaving their assigned area to go visit with their significant other. What made this story more interesting was the fact that this officer was meeting with a significant other who was involved in drug activity and other criminal activity. Now, we may not have known about this except for the fact that other officers that worked with this officer actually turned that officer in and said, this person is leaving their assigned area, meeting with a criminal, who happens to also be their significant other. And we don't know if they're involved in any drug operation or anything like that, but we know that there's something going on here. And those officers reported that. It's just, it's just another case of folks who think, well, our officers never tell on one another and, and they're not policing their own. I, I just don't buy it. We are out there and, and we're willing to speak up and, and say when someone is doing something wrong. And the subject here is policing the police. And we're talking with Joe Gamaldi, the second vice president of the Houston Police Officers Union, And we asked Joe to zoom out and share some of the statistics about complaints against police. And this was really surprising. We've had approximately 1,000 complaints last year. Okay, that is 1,000 complaints against our officers. 200 came from the general public. The other 800 or so came from within the department, supervisors on officers, officers on officers, officers on supervisors. Now, keep in mind, all of those complaints that we discussed, the 200 from citizens, were based on 2 million citizen contacts last year. 
Now, the 800 internal complaints were coming from people who were identifying conduct that should not have been taking place by an officer or a sergeant, and it could be something minor. It could have been that they weren't wearing their seatbelt, or it could have been that they used excessive force. But the point is, most people don't understand just how much we police each other already. And such a great point. And again, as we, as we had indicated, you know, you could look into corporate America, and the leadership, well, it comes from the top. And if you let people do bad things... Well, people are going to do bad things. And if you have a a culture of integrity, well, you're not going to have these problems. And that's why we like doing what we do here, painting any community with a broad brush. We just won't allow here, particularly folks who put themselves in harm's way. Just not going to allow it. And what we love about Joe is he is not defensive about bad cops being there. And it sounds to me like their chief goal is to ferret these guys out because they know how bad it is for the Houston Police Department itself. Houston places such a high priority on rooting out bad cops that the police officers' union actively encourages citizens to file complaints if they've been mistreated. We actually go out into the community and we preach, comply with our officers, and if you feel that you've been mistreated in any way, complain. And that is such a big thing for us to push to the community because we want them to know that we don't want officers out there disrespecting you. We don't want officers mistreating you in any way. And the only way that we know about it is if you tell us, if you complain on them, because otherwise we, we may not know. And it, I think it's a big step when you have a police union stepping out into the community and saying, if our officers are doing wrong, we want you to complain on them. If a citizen is interested in making a complaint against an officer because they felt that they were mistreated in any way, they can make a complaint at any Houston Police Department facility in the city. They can also make a complaint at any LULAC office or any NAACP office. We try to make it as easy as possible so that no one can ever say, well, I wanted to make a complaint, but I just I didn't know where to go or I didn't know how. Once they come in, they can fill out a statement that essentially says, you know, this officer did this. They have to sign and swear out the statement. At that point, it's forwarded to IED who does a full investigation, including interviewing the officer and having a letter written by the officer to explain what happened in the situation. At that point, there'll be a determination as to whether any misconduct took place or if there was any violation of our general orders. If there was a violation, the officer will receive discipline according to a discipline manual that we have. And if it, if there was found that he didn't do anything wrong, then, of course, he'll be exonerated. And finally, Joe tells us about the types of incidents most likely to make the news. Shootings. Last year, we had two million citizen contacts. Two million. Shootings that we had as a result of contact with two million people, 32. A majority of which were armed or attempted to use their vehicle as a weapon on the officer. Anytime our officer is involved in a shooting, okay, we have HPD Internal Affairs out there, HPD Homicide Division, Then we have the district attorney's office, who is completely an independent of the police department, investigating this shooting. In addition to that, there's a layer on top of that, and that is the Department of Justice. In the 32 shootings that we had last year, we had eight of them looked at by the Department of Justice that were referred to them just to make sure that it was justified. And and these shootings go to a grand jury. So folks seem to think that that there's some sort of oh, well, the officers just get a free pass and there's no investigation. Actually, there's even more of an investigation than if it were a normal shooting out on the street because we understand how sensitive this issue is. I just wish that people... Oh, we also have an independent police oversight board, which is a board of citizens that look at every single 
uh, Houston Police Department shooting to deem it whether they think it's justified or not. So there are so many layers in place, but people don't seem to talk about anything like that when an officer gets involved in shooting. Before we have any facts, before we have any information, people like to jump to conclusions and make assumptions about what occurred. We preach patience. Let's wait until the investigation is completed. If it's decided that the officer acted improperly, well, then he's going to have to pay the piper and he's going to have to deal with the consequences of his actions. But if they did the job properly, then, then all of this needs to stop. We, we can't hang all these officers out to dry in the media before we have the facts. And that's the kind of storytelling we do here on Our American Stories. A serious cop trying to make community relations as good as possible and holding officers accountable. Joe Gamaldi, second vice president, Houston Police Officers Union. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you're looking for political talk, try somewhere else. Hot talk, another channel. But if you're looking for stories, that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And recently, our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, brought us a very strange report about a very strange law in the state of Wisconsin. And we like to report on what's going on in the states. You won't hear a lot of D.C. and New York and L.A. talk here. And that, there's a reason for that. And by the way, those cities are filled with people who are from everywhere else, too. So it was about time we started talking about what's going on in the large swath of this country called flyover country. Well, it was so strange, we felt compelled to do a second installment. installment. And here's Alex. Last week, we heard about some strange news reports like this one. Curiosity leads to large crowds in Mobile's Crichton community, many of you bringing binoculars, camcorders, even camera phones to take pictures. To me, it looked like a leprechaun to me. I got to do look up in the tree. Who else in the leprechaun say yeah? yeah! Eyewitnesses say the leprechaun only comes out at night. If you shine a light in its direction, it suddenly disappears. And then the strangest one of them all. Low prices are part of the Meyer business model, but are they too low? The company says it's never encountered this type of situation in any other state where it operates. Low prices that are too low? Our brains and our wallets were so unsettled that we had to find out what on earth was going on here and whether we were still even on the planet Earth. And so we asked an expert, the president of a think tank called the McIver Institute. And more importantly, Brett Healy is a Wisconsin resident and expert shopper. Wisconsin's minimum markup law is a relic from the distant past. It was originally passed back in 1939, and essentially the law makes it illegal for retailers and wholesalers to sell merchandise at a discount. But it's not just Meyer and their customers who were affected. Today, we hear about Walmart. We did an analysis of Walmart flyers from Milwaukee, Chicago, and Minneapolis during the back-to-school days when so many retailers are offering low prices 
uh, an attempt to convince you to come to their store to buy your back-to-school supplies. And what we found was that the minimum markup law in Wisconsin is having a real impact on Wisconsinites, and it's, it's a costly one. Elmer Glue Sticks in Chicago went for 50 cents a pop during the back-to-school sales. In Milwaukee, because of the minimum markup law, that glue, same glue stick had to be sold for $1.25. So that's a 150% increase uh, thanks to the minimum markup law. We saw the same sort of prices for other items like markers and notebooks. In each of these situations, you're seeing a 50 to 70% markup on the cost of back-to-school supplies. Oh, back-to-school, back-to-school, to prove to Dad that I'm not a fool. I got my lunch packed up, my boots tied tight. I hope I don't get in a fight. He was pretty somber there, but Adam Sandler got really riled up when we told him about his prescription drugs. Walmart has a very popular uh, generic prescription drug program where they sell for $4, 350 different drugs. Uh, In Wisconsin, however, they're not able to sell all of those drugs at that $4 price. All right! Because of the minimum markup laws, a certain number of, of the drugs here in Wisconsin are required to be sold at $8. Once again, things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday! Which is a 100% increase over what people in other states are getting their drugs for. You blew it! In this area alone, Wisconsinites are being charged up to $35 million more a year for prescription drugs. Will you give me a break one time? This isn't some esoteric debate in ivory towers. This is a a, a public policy issue that has an impact on real Wisconsinites, and it's costing them big money out of their checkbooks. Ah, You sick! You sick! Why would you do that? Adam Sandler. He speaks and he screams. Do you understand me? On behalf of the rest of us. Walmart is now closing four locations in the state of Wisconsin. The state's minimum markup law may have had something to do with it. To what degree, we'll never know. And yet those most affected by the law might not even be the big retailers like Walmart or Meyer, or even Wisconsin consumers. It might be the very small businesses who claim they need the law to protect their higher profit margins. With the advance of the Internet and uh, people becoming more and more comfortable purchasing their products through the Internet, People are going to turn to the Internet more and more to get the lowest prices. In the age of the Internet, fewer folks will go to these mom-and-pop shops with prices that they know are higher. And we won't because of the minimum markup law. Families like Brett's know that they can often get better prices for the very same goods online. My family is a perfect example of that. My wife loves Walmart.com. We get a box every two or three days at the house through the mail from Walmart.com of the everyday household products that we use, the best price possible. The mom and pop shops, the Myers, the Walmarts, all should be given a chance to compete freely, to fight to be the best they can be in the marketplace. And as consumers, for us to spend our own money freely. If more Wisconsinites knew about the minimum markup law and knew that there was bureaucrats being paid with their tax dollars whose sole job is to prevent them from getting the best price possible on their products, I think they'd be outraged. And so I think the more we talk about this issue, uh, the more and more people are going to wake up and demand that this antiquated 1939 
law be changed and hopefully we can unleash the true power of competition here in Wisconsin and do away with the minimum markup law. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. Great job on that, Alex, and you can't make it up. And, and by the way, Walmart, I just looked it up because it's an amazing number. They save the average American family $2,500 a year with their discounts. You know, and in some places, folks, that's real money. Like in my household and everyone here at this show. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We bring you the kind of stories that affect your pocketbook, the kind of stories that affect your lives. And you can see or hear all of it on ouramericannetwork.org. More after this. stories and you're listening to Alan Jackson singing the hymn softly and tenderly as he sings everything straight as an arrow and this is our final thought segment and this final thought segment comes from a student at Hillsdale College named Shiloh Carosa. I was up there in Michigan teaching for two weeks a group of young students about storytelling and I asked each of them A simple question. What are you going through? Tell me a story. We started putting different stories on the board. Shiloh was very quiet. After two classes, I sort of gave her some space. When everybody left, I approached her. And I said, what's up? What do you got? I haven't heard from you during the class. And She said, my my dad's dying. We found out he had cancer and he's not going to make it through the spring. I said, well, you're going through something. I said, why don't we write about it? Why don't you sit down and think about what you might want to do, what you might want to say to him? And so this is the story of Ken Carosa, a man who found himself locked in a battle with terminal brain cancer last spring. After raising a loving family in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Ken suddenly found his efforts redirected to a war he never planned to wage at the age of 58. Ken had spent the last 18 years homeschooling his two children, teaching part-time at Cornerstone University, and ministering in pulpits around Grand Rapids. More than anything, his life had been devoted to investing in other people's souls, striving to reach them and teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ and shower them with the same grace God had given him. In light of Ken's diagnosis, Shiloh decided to pass on his message while reminding her father of the powerful impact he had left on those around him, not least of all, his own family. Here's Shiloh. 
When my father was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer in 2015, my family knew our lives were going to look very different. No longer would my brother and I have our closest counselor there to help us navigate the rest of our college years and early adulthood. My father would soon find his remaining time riddled with medications, surgeries, and sympathy cards. He would be fortunate to reach two years, a number we all despised for its brevity. But my father viewed those two years as a precious window of time in which he could still invest in others, still spread God's mercy, and teach people to live life in such a way that they will be prepared when they lose it. In October of 2015, my father delivered a message to the men of Oak Hill Presbyterian Church titled, Preparing to Cross the Finish Line, which I will be quoting. As a man who spent his entire life devoted to discipling and exhorting others to pursue their Creator, he now found himself preaching the importance of being ready to meet their Creator. What follows is the message he wanted to leave the world with. A parting challenge for those willing to listen. And here are those words of Shiloh's dad. You cannot change the brevity of life. We have to all deal with that at one time or another. And we either get in touch with that or we don't. There's a way to deal with this. It's called preparation. What do you do to prepare for the day when you're told there's going to be a period after your sentence? You're going to be gone? I think what happens is, as Christians, we look at time and say, as long as I have it settled with Jesus, I'm okay. If anything happens, it's not if anything happens. It will happen. So what are you going to do to cultivate your preparation for the transition to the next life? Shiloh's dad continued, Six years ago, I lost two friends of mine in their 40s. It was just over with a heart attack, both times. I couldn't believe that I had talked to them one day and they were gone the next. Oftentimes we think, as long as I'm saved, whatever happens, happens. But it affects the way you conduct your affairs. You start to ask, how am I going to spend my time? There's some aspect of this that we've got to think constructively about. Now, I'm not saying to get used to it all because death is part of life. Death is not part of life. If death were part of life, we wouldn't have tears. We wouldn't have separations that cause depression for people and all the heartache that goes with it. No, death is unnatural because we no longer live in the perfect world that God made. It's fallen because of sin. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead so our sin could be forgiven, gives us that opportunity of eternal life again. So you can prepare for death, and you need to think about how you look at God. I learned that in spades. Is God being tough? Is he being hard? Is he doing this to be mean? Or is God really at something special? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying you can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't imagine it. But God has something even better where he is. 
But some of us are alienated from the idea that God is not going to shortchange us. My experience was that God took away the fear when I needed him to do that. I left Grand Rapids, going to the University of Michigan, hoping that I would have a good outcome from the surgery. But I also knew it was possible that I might not be coming back. Having your account settled is a really good thing. I'm not talking about wills and estates. I know I could talk about that, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to tell you that God gave me a little bit more time. My question for you is, do you have any idea how long you have? Are you going to get another five years, ten, six months? Maybe you won't be here tomorrow night. What are you doing to make sure that you're ready? Even in death, her dad was teaching and ministering to souls. Let's return back to Shiloh. My father loved people all his life and wanted them to know Christ personally. He provided my brother and me with a tangible example of living, resilient faith. He taught us to face life with the courage and confidence that God will carry us through any storm we face, even if it's the storm that ends our life. He taught us to live each day intentionally, to be ready, and to hold nothing back because we never know if we'll have tomorrow. As his daughter, I can say that he held nothing back in raising my brother and me. When he returned home from his first surgery, he opened up about his own feelings. He told me he was satisfied with the way he'd spent his life as a Christian, and knowing what he'd done, I could see why. He'd pastored a church, he'd taught at a Christian university, he'd spread the gospel through the radio and written publication. But when he sat across from me that day, he didn't mention any of those things. He looked me in the eye and said, You and your brother are my best investments. When I remember those words, I'm reminded of the years he spent homeschooling us. The evenings we went fishing in the lake. The times he took us camping, even though he never cared for life in a tent. The advice he was always so willing to dispense when we needed it. The late-night conversations when we were too engrossed to look at the clock. All the nights he and my mom tucked us into bed. Looking ahead, we don't know how much time my father has left. Perhaps only a matter of months. No, he will probably not walk me down the aisle. No, he will not see his grandchildren. But compared to what he's done for us in the time he had, those things become pretty small. He gave us his parting message as a reminder to use the time we have. So I want to take this opportunity to remind him of the meaning he poured into my life. Thanks, Dad. And beautifully done, Shiloh. And Ken, her father. My goodness, what a thing all of us want our daughters to say. She said, as his daughter, I can say that he held nothing back in raising my brother and me. She also said, he looked me in the eye and said, you and your brother are my best investments. Beautiful. Life is short, and it seems too short when you share it with people you love. 
But Ken Carosa's life serves as testament to the power of God's grace and the importance of being ready. American Stories, and you're wondering, what are you listening to? You're listening to the great Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top play his Pearly Gates Les Paul. And there's something intoxicating about the sound of a lone guitar playing the blues. And that's why we're playing it. We love music here in our American Stories. Strings, horns, keys, wood, percussion, virtually anything that the creative mind can imagine can be used to make sounds that move us. As Plato once wrote, music is the movement of sound to reach the soul for the education of, of its virtue. When it comes to stringed instruments, some of the most played guitars are made right here in the United States. This day in history, in 1902, the Gibson Mandolin Guitar Manufacturing Company was formed. And today we're going to focus on the musicians who have used Gibson guitars to bring us some of the best music ever made. What rock stars think of all these American guitars and how they were inspired by them, the nostalgia, the history of the guitars themselves, what we're about to dive into. But just a little background. Orville Gibson, born 1856, patented a single-piece mandolin design in 1898 that was more durable than other mandolins and could be manufactured in volume. Gibson began to sell his instruments in 1894 out of a one-room workshop in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In 1902, Gibson Mandolin Guitar Manufacturing Company Limited was incorporated to market those instruments. Initially, the company produced only Orville Gibson's original designs. Orville died in 1918 of a heart condition. Gibson sells guitars under a variety of names and brands and builds one of the world's most iconic guitars, the Gibson Les Paul. Many Gibson instruments are highly collectible. Gibson was at the forefront of innovation in acoustic guitars, too, especially in the big band era of the 1930s. The Gibson Super 400 was widely imitated. They now call their home Nashville. In 1952, Gibson introduced its first solid-body electric guitar, the Les Paul, which became its most popular guitar to date, designed by Ted McCarty and Les Paul himself. Here is Les Paul talking about the conception and creation of the very first Les Paul guitar. The way it came about, it came about where I handed them the log. And then I decided to put wings on the log. In other words, the log just was a piece four by four that went through from here to here. I put these wings on the sides of it, clamped them on. Now it looked like a guitar sounded like a guitar, and uh, then took that to Gibson. And what came out of that was the idea that it was so big, so heavy, that the first thing we wanted to do was make it smaller. So I did that. So I didn't have a problem with that. 
Here's guitarist Tommy Thayer from Kiss and Johnny Hickman from Cracker on why Gibson has always been their favorite acts. I love guitars because they look cool. Well, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, getting into music and starting to play guitar in the early to mid-70s. So for me, it was Ronnie Montrose and Richie Blackmore and Peter Frampton, Steve Marriott, Jimmy Page. A lot of guys that played Les Pauls, actually, and, and that... Uh, drew me into the, the Les Paul Gibson world probably more than anything. Over the years, it's, uh, it's made me my living. It's gone all over the world with me. As Billy Gibbons says, uh, you put a wiggle stick on a nice 77 Les Paul standard. What'd you do that for, Johnny? But I just... I like the sound of a Gibson and I like having that, that little wiggle stick on there. In a documentary called It Might Get Loud, which you must see, three rock legends featuring Jimmy Page, Jack White, and Edge. The guys are filmed while sitting around talking about old songs and playing their guitars when Jimmy Page brings out his Gibson Les Paul for an impromptu rendition of Whole Lot of Love. This is the Gibson sound right here. <laughs> record at home of uh, a guitar that had a lot of sustain on it and I, and I, and I, I got him to come around and have a listen to it I said can you get that and he went away and came back with this phenomenal thing distortion pedal which overloads the signal overdrive the sound and make it sound pretty rude Jimmy Page talks about his double-neck Gibson SG model that he used to record Stairway to Heaven because he needed to cut through the sound of all the other guitars on that track. We recorded Stairway to Heaven, and uh, because there was, like, uh, so many guitars on it, the Guitar Army, as they used to tease me about the band, but um, because of that, it, it needed at least, you know, it needed more texture than just, uh, just one guitar. And, uh, and the double neck seemed a perfect, uh, well, a perfect compromise, really, on it, you know. So, so I ordered one from Gibson's, and it was just after that point that we recorded Stairway, really. Here's blues rock guitarist Joe Bonamassa giving us a demonstration of the different tones you can get with a Les Ball guitar without the use of effects pedals. He gives us this demonstration using one of Bruce Springsteen's old guitars. This is the boss's guitar. This is a Henry J model, gold top. Just come out. Collector's Choice number 12. And so what you have here is an entire plethora of sounds without having to plug into one pedal. How? Well, you have your volumes. You have your pickup selector. You have your tone knobs, which is the forgotten pedal or forgotten knob. 
So we could start here with your woman tone. With a simple touch of a button, you can have instant West Montgomery. Then, as we engage the tone, you have a nice, bright, clean sound. Again, here's your clean sound. No need to change a channel. No need to disengage the tube screamer. No need to touch anything on the floor, as you can see. Well, maybe you can't. There's nothing on the floor. So now, here's your clean sound. If we want a solo like, uh, say, Johnny Winter or Freddie King or, or Larry Carlton, you know, just engage your front pickup. Bring it down, shall you say? You want a clean tone? Now we engage the knob again. And what a great lesson by Joe. And when we come back, we're going to hear from more guitarists, more musicians about this thing called the Gibson Guitar. And the Gibson Guitar Corporation was born in this day in history in 1902. This is Our American Stories, the story of one of the great manufacturing companies in American and world music history. More after these messages. Jesse, what are we listening to? Uh, that's a recording of Les Paul from 1951 playing with um, Mary Ford. So Les Paul's playing as Les Paul. He's playing as Les Paul. I believe before the Les Paul is actually a Les Paul. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We're telling the story of the Gibson Guitar Corporation. And on this day in history, it was born in 1902. And the world, well, if you're a musician anywhere in the world and you're a guitar player, you know what Gibson means. For those of us who aren't civilians, I like to call lots of us, I think it's always interesting to hear the story behind the story of the, of the equipment that so many great musicians use. In this clip, the great Eric Clapton takes a test drive on a reproduction Gibson Harrison Clapton Lucy Les Paul guitar. This is the replica of the guitar that Eric Clapton played the lead on in the Beatles' While My Guitar Gently Weeps although he was not formally credited for his contribution.
That's, sounds good. Good. Yeah. I think I bought it in um, New York. Right. You know, there were a lot of time spent in New York in the 60s where I was uh, <clears throat> traveling around with Cream. And I can't remember whether I was with Cream. It may have been. I played this on Guitar Gently Weeps, you know. See, George is capable, would have been capable of setting this up. I remember bringing it back from America and wanting to give it to him because I, I, I already had one, I think. I had another Les Paul. And then I, and I gave it to him. And I think when, when he asked me to do the, the session for Gently Weeps, I did because I, he dropped, he, I, it sounds right because he, he picked me up from where I was living in London and said, we're going to go over the studio. Do you, do you want to come along? And I, and I said, yeah. And he said, well, um, I want you to play on something. And I didn't have a guitar because I was just got in the car with him, you know. And so I, he gave me this to play. And what a guitar solo that is. One of the greats in the Beatles canon. Another famous Gibson that cannot go without mention is B.B. King's guitar named Lucille. Gibson made the B.B. King standard model from 1980 to 1985. This model had chrome hardware and dot inlays instead of block inlays. Here's B.B. on the story of how that guitar got its name. In the winter of 1949, King played at a dance hall in Twist, Arkansas. We used to play at this little nightclub... And when it got quite cold there, they would take something that looked like a big garbage pail, half fill it with kerosene, light that fuel, set it in the middle of the dance floor, and that's what we used for heat in winter. Two guys started fighting one night, and one knocked the other one on this container. It was spilled on the floor. It looked like a river fire, and everybody started to run for the front door, including B.B. King. But when I got on the outside, I realized then that I'd left the guitar inside. I went back for it. The building was a wooden building, and it started to burn in rapidly. It started to fall in around me. I almost lost my life trying to save my guitar. And the next morning, we found that these two guys was fighting, fighting about a lady that worked in the little nightclub. I never did meet her, but I learned that her name was Lucille. I named my guitar Lucille to remind me never to do a thing like that again. And that's a true story. That's how it happened. And B.B. King not only risked his life to save his Gibson guitar, King named that guitar and every guitar he subsequently owned Lucille as a reminder, as he just said, to never do something as stupid as to run into a burning building or fight over women. He even named an album after it and wrote this song about it. The sound that you're listening to is from my guitar that's named Lucille. I'm very crazy about Lucille. Lucille took me from the plantation. Oh, and you might say, brought me fame. I don't think I could just talk enough about Lucille. Sometimes when I'm blue, it seems like Lucy will try to help me call my name. I used to sing spirituals, and I thought that this was the thing that I wanted to do. But somehow or other, when I went in the army, I picked up on Lucille and started singing the blues. 
And it's hard to cut that off because there's nobody better in the world than just telling a story, laying a few licks down about his best friend and that instrument that helped him get where he is today. That's how personal guitars are. Here, Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards talks about the time he tried to touch rock star Chuck Berry's Gibson ES-355 backstage and got punched by Berry for doing so. I was in a dressing room. He was doing a gig. Uh, he went off to collect the money, I think. And, That's what uh, it always he, is. He was a tight wad, and bless you, Chuck. But, uh, he, he, and his guitar was laid out in his case, and I went, oh, come on, Keith, you know, just a touch. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta play a little bit, right? Yeah, just let me give it a, an E chord. Or, <laughs> he walked in and goes, nobody touches my guitar. Boom! Uh, that's one of Chuck's biggest hits, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. And here's Keith Richards. Well... He actually has his own Gibson ES-350, but as he says here, that it's too nice to take on the stage. He goes on to talk about how Gibsons and Fenders alike are simply the best that ever were. It's too good to take on stage. I mean, I'd be afraid of breaking it or something, you know, by making a silly move, and it's a big guitar. I love it for the studio. I love it to be in the dressing room and... It's such a beautiful all-round sound. It's not necessarily the best guitar for, you know, working, uh, you know, airfield air basses <laughs> in the rain and stuff. So I don't, I don't want to damage it, you know. But um, the electric guitar all-round is a weird instrument uh, in that really the best ones were built when they were first invented. I mean, they've not improved it. I mean, there's a few things, you know, about, you know, it doesn't feed back. But basically, Gibson and Fender between them. I mean, it's almost like it was born out of nowhere, and it was the most perfect thing. You know, the Telecaster, the Stratocaster, the Gibsons are just... You can't, you can't better them. I mean, they try now and uh, whatever, and there's loads of tricks and stuff, but when it comes down to it, it's almost it was born out of nowhere, the electric guitar. It's, almost, uh, it's a funny instrument. Born out of nowhere, right here in the United States, starting in Pennsylvania, Gibson now housed in Nashville, Tennessee. And one last story. When times were tough for Aerosmith guitarist Joe Perry... Back in the early 1980s, he ended up selling one of his prized 1959 Gibson Les Pauls. Here's Joe Perry talking with Conan O'Brien, and by the way, Conan loves guitars, about how another famous guitarist helped him get it back years later when Joe spotted his old guitar in a magazine that was featuring the guitar collection 
of Slash. From- I called him up and he was like, oh, please don't ask me, man. Don't ask me that, you know, because he did not want to get rid you, of Did you say I'll buy it back? I, yeah, I-, I said I'll pay whatever you want for it because it, it had, like, doubled in price by then. And, right. And, uh, and he said, well, listen, I'll think about it. So uh, I called him back and over a series of uh, months go by and I'm talking to him and you know, every, I'd, I'd ask him, and then finally he stopped taking my calls, and I, I finally had to, I had to, I had to sit him down. Slash say, just put his hat over the phone. Yeah, it was like I, I don't want, I don't want to hear that anymore, man. And I knew it was getting in the way of our friendship, and I said, look, I'll never ask you about it again, man. I just, want, if you ever want to sell it back, just, just, you know, give me a call, whatever. But I'm not going to bug you about it. And uh, at my 50th birthday, um, Cheap Trick was playing. They came in to, to play, and uh, I sat in with them, and in the middle of the set, my guitar tech walks up and hands me this guitar. And it was the guitar, and Slash gave it to me. Slash gave it to you. That is a sweet guy. And there you have it. And we're going to go out listening to the sounds of the Gibson SG model that Jimmy Page talked about earlier the one that he used to cut through the sound of all the other Qatars on the track, Stairway to Heaven. This is Our American Stories, Gibson Guitars, born on this day in history in 1902. As always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by Hillsdale College.